I was 11 years old. I remember very vividly. In the United States, my, my best friend was a, a baseball player, and that morning, I had seen a baseball game of his. It was a Sunday, and I'd watched the baseball game, and then I went home, and, you know, it was a normal day. I went to bed that night, and I'll never forget what took place. I remember dreaming, and I was standing there as the batter, and the pitcher just threw this fastball, and I swung, and I, I connected with the ball. The batter just crushed it, and it was going out into left field far, far, far. I saw that it was going to go out of the park, and I just started running. I took off around first base. I stopped at first base, and I ran, and I started going towards second base as fast as I could. I wanted to make a home run. When I got to second base, I was almost there, and about 10 feet away, the referee that stands at second base jumped out, and he grabbed me. And he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, I'm running the second base. I'm running the second base. I was thinking, why did this referee stop me? What had actually happened was I had jumped off the top bunk of my bed. <laughs> I had stopped and turned, and I had run straight out my bedroom door into the dining room of our house, and I had made a 90-degree turn, and I was running through our living room into the wall. And my dad jumped up off the couch and he grabbed me and he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, I'm running the second base. I'm running the second base. <laughs> Friends, have you ever had a dream so real that you were sure that you were there? Have you ever had a dream so real that you were sure that you were there? Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. It is possible to be physically asleep, and to be convinced that you are fully awake. Isn't that right? Now, spiritually, the same is possible. Paul says in Romans 13, verses 11 and 12, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Friends, it is all too possible to be spiritually asleep and to be spiritually sleepwalking. The year was 1856. It was after the Great Disappointment, 12 years after actually, the Great Disappointment of 1844, and this little group of those who believed in Jesus soon coming had not given up their faith. They had held on. This group, who were from all different denominations, bound together, and they faithfully studied and came to a unity of belief on the teachings of the Holy Bible. What had been a fledgling little group of around 50 people had finally, to 12 years later, become a living, healthy, growing church. Tonight, we're going to take a look at something that had to do with their understanding of the book of Revelation something in their history, and really, something in our history as Seventh-day Adventists. Now, before we go any further, I have a confession to make tonight. That confession is this. I used to think that history was boring. Anyone else in the same boat? Let me finish what I'm going to say. Maybe the, um, maybe the, yeah, the hands will change. I used to think that history was boring, but when I gave my life to Jesus... I found history all of a sudden to be fascinating. I started to love history because, you see, 
The reason history was fascinating is because it's just that. History is his story. History, as we look back, is the ways that we can see God's providence and his leading in our past. And it gives us encouragement for what the Lord is doing right now and what he's going to do in the future. Amen? So history is not some archaic, boring thing. No. When we carefully look at history, we can see the amazing things that God has done. And if we forget those, we are more likely to not trust him in the future. So tonight, we're going to take a look at our history as a people and how we understood the message to the Laodiceans from Jesus himself, from Revelation chapter 3 that we've been studying together this week as we've been hearing his final call to each and every one of us. Revelation is a book of sevens, is it not? A book of sevens. They, we remember as we have read the book of Revelation, no doubt many times, that there were seven stars in Jesus' hand, right? There are seven trumpets in Revelation. We have the seven last plagues. The lamb, John saw a picture of Jesus, symbolizing Jesus, that had seven horns and seven eyes. The lamb was the only one that could open the seven, what? The seven seals, very good. Now, the, the first set of, or the first mention of seven is at the beginning of the book, and it's Jesus' letters to the, what? The seven churches. Very good. And this is what we're going to be studying tonight. Now, John was instructed by Jesus to write down these messages that Jesus gave specifically uh, to him. They are to seven, as we've mentioned, to seven literal local churches that were there in Asia Minor. There were many more than just seven, but Jesus chose these specific seven churches because he had a message for them back then. But also, these messages to the seven churches are a prophetic message and a prophetic outline of what God's church would go through down through time all the way until Jesus came in the clouds of glory. And we've been talking about the message to the church of what? Laodicea. Is that first on the list, middle, or where does it lie? That's right, it's last. So it would make sense that if it is the prophetic outline of God's church, if he saw those churches in Asia Minor and chose those ones because he knew that his people down through time would struggle with these same things in the order that he wrote the letters to the churches, it's be, it means that the last church on the list represents God's last day people. Amen? God's last day people who are waiting and working for Jesus' soon return in the clouds of glory. Now, we uh, as Seventh-day Adventists are not the first ones to understand this as students of the Bible and students of prophecy. In fact, this is a, a position that has been held, this, the belief that the, the seven churches of Revelation actually represent God's people down through time. It goes back to a man, he's the first one that we have on record, named Joachim of Fiore from Italy. He was an Italian theologian in the 12th century. So Bible students who have sought out the Lord down through time have been led to this biblical truth. So it's not something that originates uh, with Seventh-day Adventists as a people. Now, the position that we have now is different than what we had back in the 1850s. You see, back then, the Seventh-day Adventist church believed and taught that, that they themselves were represented by the Church of Philadelphia. After the Great Disappointment, after 1844, they said, no, we're the Church of Philadelphia, and the Church of Laodicea 
are all of those other Christian churches who have rejected many of the truths of the Bible and are saying that it's okay to, to carouse and party and do all these things and be a Christian at the same time. They said, those churches are Laodicea, not us. We're represented by Philadelphia. Now, what was the difference? Uh, what was so imp- why would they want to be represented by Philadelphia? Let's take a quick look at what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. Revelation 3, verses 7 to 12. The verses will be on the screen for the sake of time, but you are encouraged to, if you brought your Bible, to turn there with me in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. No man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. The message continues, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now I want to ask you a question when we finish this section. Jesus close to the message of the Philadelphians, uh, the Philadelphian church. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man may take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down of he- out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him a new name. Now, friends, did you hear one negative thing in that message? Neither did I. There was not a single negative statement that Jesus made to the, to the church of, of Philadelphia. Not a single one. So we understand why the, the Seventh-day Adventist church would want to believe, yes, this, this applies to us, right? This applies to us. Well, the, uh, the message that John was instructed to write and send to the, the church of Philadelphia and to send to all of the churches, the Seventh-day Adventist church's understanding, the leader's understanding of this um, position or their... Um, their belief that they were represented by Philadelphia started to become challenged. The reason is because Ellen White started receiving many in around 1856, or in early 1856, more specifically. She started receiving messages for people in the church. And they were not messages that God was sending them that were were necessarily easy to hear. They were strong messages where they needed correction, where they needed to change major things in their lives. And therefore, she started thinking, what, is our position that we are Philadelphia really the truth? Is this really the case? She spoke with her husband, James, James White, one of the leaders, the, the, oh, yeah, one of the leaders of our church. And he started studying, and he struggled with this. And, and as he was studying and thinking and, and talking with Ellen, we can imagine that this was very, very challenging. It was hard. I mean, the Seventh-day Adventist church had had this position for 12 years. Now, how could they all of a sudden turn around and, and change their position? 
James must have been thinking, have we been spiritually sleepwalking all of this time? Have we thought that we were okay and actually been all wrong? Friends, we, we may point to them and say, man, how could, they, how could they not see this? But the truth is that it's all too possible for us to think that we're okay when we're actually not. We are prone as human beings to think that, that a strong message or, or correction applies to the person next to us or behind us or somebody else, but not to us. It's a part of our human nature. On the airplane on the way over here, they instructed everyone to put their phones in airplane mode. Well, they said to shut them off. Um, but I put my phone in airplane mode and put it away. And then something out the window was beautiful. I think it was a, a sunset. And I was like, oh, that's gorgeous. So I pulled out my phone and I opened the camera and uh, I snapped a picture and, and then I heard the stewardess say, please put away your device. And I thought she was talking to somebody else. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I didn't think she was talking to me at all. And finally, it, it sunk in. And um, before she had to say it a second time, thankfully, I realized she was talking to me. See, friends, it's all too easy to think that a, a message of correction or instruction does not apply to us. Isn't that right? We all too often tend to think that it applies to someone else. But the Laodicean message, the Adventist church began to realize applied to them. And tonight, as we examine what happened in the church, this incredible, the beginning of what could have been the end and could have ushered in Jesus' second coming, we're going to be amazed at what this message did to transform the lives of those who heard it and who accepted it and internalized it. James was, was agonizing with this question, what shall we do? You know, what, is this really, have we been wrong all this time? There's a Turkish proverb, an old Turkish proverb that says, no matter how far you've gone on the wrong road, turn around. Isn't that the truth? No matter how far we've gone on the wrong road, no pressure, no anything should cause us to continue going. We should be like, you know what? I realize this is the wrong road. I'm going to turn around. Amen? And James White was a man of integrity, and this is exactly what he did. In the next Review and Herald, October 9, 1856, there was an article that he posted with a number of questions. He just brought this up with a number of questions. We're going to look through just a few of them, although they're all listed. If anyone would be interested, I'd be more than happy to share the slides after this so you can study this deeper in your own time and on your own. Just let me know or let one of the youth leaders know, our Pastor Marty, and I'd be happy to get it to you. But October 9, 1856, he wrote these words. At present, there is space for only a few questions asked to call attention to the subject to which they relate. A full answer, we trust, will soon be given. And then he begins. Do the seven churches of Revelation 1 verse 11 represent seven conditions of the true church in seven periods of time? What do you believe the answer was? Well, yes, absolutely. That's clear. Number two, if so, then is the view erroneous that the Philadelphia and the Laodicea states both exist at the same time? Doesn't that make sense? If God's church has been represented by one church through each age, how could two exist at the same time? And we wonder, why didn't they see this earlier? Well, friends, sometimes we have selective spiritual vision, isn't that right? Number three, does the church in Sardis represent the nominal churches um, to whom the Advent message was first given? 
Continuing on, number four, and does the church of Philadelphia represent the church of God in her state of consecration and brotherly love looking for the coming of Jesus in 1844? Then he says, the last one we're going to look at, if so, is not the present time and the period of the Laodicean condition uh, now? He was saying, isn't this the present time of the Laodicean condition? And he says, does not the state of the Laodiceans, lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, fully illustrate the condition of the body of those who profess the third angel's message? He was asking some tough questions, saying, look around you at the church. We were once on fire for Jesus, but are you sure that we are represented by Philadelphia? What was the, the final thing that he said? He asked a few more questions that made the case very clear. And then number 11 was this. If this be our condition as a people, have we any real grounds to hope for the favor of God unless we heed the counsel of the true witness as follows? And then he quoted Revelation chapter three where Jesus instructs us to buy gold refined in the fire, the eye salve that'll enable us to see, and the robe which represents his perfect righteousness. So what was the reaction of the people? The question comes. The next paper, James White actually did a study, and he mentioned how Laodicea means the judging of the people. Literally, the name Laodicea, it doesn't mean lukewarm like is commonly believed, it means the judging of the people. And since 1844, according to Bible prophecy, it's been the time of the investigative judgment. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that the church of Laodicea is representative of the church since 1844, God's remnant church since that date. Well, in the next paper, two people responded. S.N. Haskell, a leading minister of our denomination at the time, and then David Hewitt, who was called the most honest man in town in Battle Creek, Michigan. When Joseph Bates rolled into town, he asked, excuse me, who is the on most honest man in town? He asked a few different people, and they all said, David Hewitt. He's the most honest man in town. So he said, okay, I'm going to go share this message uh, with him. So S.N. Haskell wrote to the review, and he actually said that he'd been thinking along identical lines to James White for quite some time. So it didn't come to, as a surprise to him. David Hewitt said, dear brethren and sisters, can we not see from the nature of the petition that the lovely Jesus is not in our hearts, though we have supposed that he was? Oh, let him in. Fathers and mothers, let him in. Husbands and wives, let him in. Preachers, let him in. May the writer of this let him in. Friends, this was a message that struck home with these two leading brethren early on when when the Adventist church was recognizing that they were the church of Laodicea, we are the church of Laodicea, and that we need to let Jesus into our hearts continually that we may have the abiding, the inward presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, the change had been, had been sudden. The change had been sudden, but it had actually been uh, revolutionary. It was... It was amazing. The message from Jesus to the Laodiceans didn't have one positive statement in it about the church. Nothing to soften the blow. Nothing to, to soften it in any way. Jesus tells us, though, out of love. Amen? He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, or I correct and discipline. Friends, we know that 
The most loving thing that a parent can do for their child when they're going away, when they're doing the wrong thing, when they're young, is to give them loving discipline. Amen? Not in any other way, but only out of love uh, for them. And God does the same for us. As they saw it clearly from Scripture, the people had two options. They could stand in defiance or they could bow in submission. Simply two options, that's all there was. And friends, it's the same for us today, isn't that right? Any time that we are faced with a message from Jesus, we have one of two options to make, one of two choices. We can either rise up in rebellion or we can humble our hearts, amen? Now, every time that Jesus gives us a message, we have a choice to make. And I don't know about you, but it's my desire to come before God and ask him to transform me. How many of you want to say, Lord, transform my heart, amen? Now, back then, the Review and Herald was much different than it is today. Today, our church is much, much larger, and uh, the way that it worked was very different. It was the hub of all church communication back then. Essentially, if you wanted to know what was happening, I mean, it was the hub of communication. It was really the pulse of the church. To find out the church's pulse in the past, all we have to do is go to the Review. Amen? All we have to do is go to the review and read to find out what people's reactions were to this message and this understanding being shifted to realize that the church of Laodicea was, was them, not the other Christians around them. Do you want to see what the people's reactions were? Oh, I don't know if you want to see it. Do you want to see what the people's reactions were? <laughs> All right, amen. Let's continue. What was the reaction to this new interpretation? The result is that by the end of November... Now remember, this was first, the very first article that James White wrote with those questions was in October, October 9. By the end of November, the new position had become the official stand of the church. And it wasn't just leaders making decisions. And this is the evidence. We're going to see it in just a moment. But the question comes first, what about Ellen White? Was she pushing in this direction? Was she pioneering this? And the answer is actually no. It wasn't until six months later that she wrote an article, and you can find it in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 141, and it was entitled, Be Zealous and Repent, in quoting Jesus from the Church of Laodicea. See, Ellen White was not, and I wish I had time, I mean, I wish I was here for another week, because we could dedicate uh, an entire series to understanding Ellen White's role in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, understanding her as a person, an individual, a mother, a grandmother. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, Six months later, when she, did, when she said this, it, it goes to show that she wasn't the one formulating Seventh-day Adventist doctrine. In fact, none of our doctrines as a church were formulated or written by Ellen White. What was the response of the church? That's the question, right? What was the response of the church? Well, in the 14 months from November all the way through of 1856, all the way through to the end of 1857, there were 348 items that appeared in the review on the Church of Laodicea. Now check this out. James White or other editorial writers wrote 16 of them. 70 of them were written by ministers, but 262 of them were written by lay members. 262. They were written by the church members. And these church members were talking about revival and things that were happening because they realized that this message applied to them. It, it was them that were broken. It, it was them that needed the help of the Savior. It was them that needed the robe of his righteousness when before they had thought that they were okay. 
Friends, these stats, these statistics show that the church accepted the message. Question comes, what about the ministers? Did they agree? J.H. Wagner, the father of famous E.J. Wagner from uh, 1888 Minneapolis General Conference, he said this, I feel constrained to add my testimony as to the lukewarm condition of the professed Sabbath keepers. This fact has long been a deep grief to me, especially have I been burdened with the state of those who have for years professed the faith. Then continuing on, another minister, Frederick Wheeler, also affirmed that this is what he saw in the field. They were agreeing with this. He said that a lukewarm state has come over the church is a fact too plainly seen to be denied. Friends, let me ask, do we see that today? We do, and I'm not saying, oh yeah, the people outside around our church. No, we have a tendency to become like what's around us. Isn't that right? And if we're not careful, we will not uh, be in the world converting the world to the church, but we will allow the world to convert the church to the world. But God wants us to be a light shining in this world for him, amen? To light the way to our heavenly home. Frederick Wheeler, continuing on, the worldly spirit that is seen, the lack of consecration and of the spirit and power that marked the early progress of the third angel's message are too apparent that, um, that tell that it is even so. So the ministers were agreeing. They said, yes, this is a problem. We see this in our church. We see this in, in uh, the people of God that were once on fire for the Lord. Now, what was the report from the pastors and the ministers who started preaching the Laodicean message. R.F. Cottrell said this, as he met with a family, afterward he wrote these words, we had a refreshing season. The testimony to the Laodicean church was considered and all seemed willing to receive the rebuke of the true witness and be zealous and repent. Praise the Lord, the people were receptive to this message, amen? Continuing on, S.W. Rhodes said, I have scarcely heard a dissenting voice to the testimony which shows the Laodicean Sabbath keepers to be in a lukewarm state. He said, I haven't even hardly heard anyone who disagrees with this. Another, A.S. Hutchins said, I wish here to add that a happy change is taking place among us. Praise God, amen? The solemn and, and stirring message to us, uh, to us, Laodiceans, is arousing the church to action now. Praise God, amen? This, this message, as it was being preached, was working a revival. He, can, he also said, A.S. Hutchins, I have been awakened to a sense of my situation. I have confessed and still do confess. You see, it wasn't just the reform that, that preachers were preaching and, ah, you're, you're Laodicean, you're lukewarm. No, it was a personal reform as well. I have been awakened to the sense of my situation. I have confessed and still do confess my great lack of patience, my want of meekness, and of Christian forbearance toward the erring in the past. Also, my severity of language in administering reproofs and admonitions. The Lord abundantly pity and freely forgive me is my prayer, and the dear children of God also. This man realized and recognized, as many of the ministers did, this message is for me. I need a transformation. I'm not just preaching this to others. This is something that needs to take place in my own heart. And friends, that goes for me, and it goes for all of us as Seventh-day Adventists and Christians and followers of the Lord. Amen? This is something that, that is a reality. If something does not change us, 
then the truth that we are proclaiming will have no power. Continuing on, we read another message or a, another testimony from Jay Dorcas. Brother Cornell has been down here among us in Ohio in the demonstration of the Spirit and with power so that we cheerfully acknowledge that this work has been the work of God. I wish to acknowledge that, excuse me, I wish to here humbly confess that I have been made to feel my truly abhorrent character before God. I have seen, clear, I have seen clearly and that pride and selfishness have been mixed with all that I have done. Friends, he had the spiritual eyes of applied and this man replied with the fact, the, a statement that said, this has caused a personal revival in my life, in my heart. The ministers and the membership began to realize this revival that had started was started by God and it was one that the Lord wanted to use to finish the work. Listen to this. Listen to this. It's powerful. From, from a uh, minister named E.R. Seaman, he, Christ, says he will come, come in and sup with us. I have proved and know him true. The spirit of our meeting at Boston has shown, me, uh, sh- shown the same to everyone present. The same spirit that we had in 1843 and 44 was with us. And the last work is commenced that will, excuse me, the last work is commenced that will end in glory if we are faithful, but it will cost all we have and all we are. Friends, he said, this is the beginning of, of Jesus' soon second coming. And we're going to see that God was wanting to start the, the final call. He wanted, this was the, uh, the beginning of the final call. God woke his people up so that they could prepare the world. And friends, we're going to see by, by the end of this message how God sent angels to prepare people in, this, in the United States specifically, and he wanted to use that to reach out to the entire world to take the three angels' message to the world. We're going to see this before the end of our message from history. The question comes, what happened? We're still here. It's been over 160 years. What happened? Unfortunately, our story takes a sad turn. Very sadly, James White said, our solemn and settled convictions are that the testimony to the Laodiceans has not been felt and obeyed. It has been too much of surface work, the influence of which soon passes from many minds. Friends, maybe you've been coming this week and you've heard messages that have stirred your heart, messages that have have made you say, yes, I want to, to surrender myself more fully to the Lord, more completely. And Friends, it's, it happened to God's people back then when there was a great revival that as time went on, they let it simply fade into the past. The question comes to us, are we just going to let our knowledge of the Laodicean message, this, this revival that the Lord has begun and, and is continuing in this church, are we just going to let ourselves be on the sidelines? Or are we going to say, Lord, use me. Use me. Here am I. Send me. I want to be a part of your work. Friends, the choice is ours, amen? And God is the one that will put the desire in your heart and the enabling, he'll, he will enable you to accomplish what he has called you to because God's biddings are his enablings, amen? Ellen White added her testimony to this. She said, the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed 
and it has been as if not entirely regard, excuse me, if not entirely disregarded. As this message fell by the wayside to a large extent, the church accepted it, but after a few short months, the fiery zeal for God that they had died away. The Lord needed them to continue. He needed them to hang on, to carry the message, to continue preaching this gospel because he was wanting to change the world with it. Friends, he wanted them to hang on. He wanted them to run the race with endurance. Amen? And he wanted to usher in his soon second coming. Jesus would have returned. He would have returned. You may be thinking, now, well, that's a bold statement if I ever heard one. How does this guy know with such confidence that the loud cry would have ushered in Jesus' return? Well, friends, before we move on and I answer that question, did you know that the Laodicean message is the same as the message of righteousness by faith? The Laodicean, and we're going to come back to this, remember it, the Laodicean message is the same as the message of righteousness by faith. Because the Laodicean message, in that message, Jesus says, I will give you gold, and the gold represents what? Faith that works by? By love. And he also later says, I will give you my robe, the robe of his righteousness. Amen? The message to the Laodiceans is justification and sanctification. This is, um, this is what the spirit of prophecy tells us, and it's clear in the Bible. This message is really one and the same. Jesus wants to dwell in our hearts by faith. That's what righteousness by faith means. That is the message. He wants to live out his life within us. Friends, the reason we know that Jesus could have come back is this. God gave, and we're going to look at history to find out what was happening in the United States in 1857 and 58. Just after God worked this amazing revival in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we're going to see what was happening around them in the country. But listen to this quote. God actually gave Ellen White a vision in which he outlined what his full plan for the giving of the Laodicean emphasis in the church was, which would carry the church right through the subsequent issues and events of the gospel being taken to all of the world so that Jesus could return. God gave her a vision showing her all of these things, and you can study it out. You might want to write this down. You can find it in first volume of the testimonies, pages 179 and 180. There she actually explains the vision that God gave her that showed that the work could have and would have been finished. And we're going to see it from history. And you're going to see that it's, it's no coincidence but that the Lord did want to finish the work. In volume one of the testimonies, we're going to look at one quote of that quickly. She says on page 180, Some I saw. Oh man, this is the quote. Friends, this, <laughs> this uh, is essentially, she's essentially explaining something that we're going to see later when we come back to it. When we read what historians were saying, there was something that they did not understand. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't quite make it out. But God revealed it to us through Ellen White. He actually said um, through her this very thing, that God sent out angels to prepare people to receive the message of righteousness by faith, to receive the third angel's message. She says, some I saw did not participate in this work of agonizing and pleading. They seemed indifferent and careless. They were not resisting the darkness around them, but it shut them in like a thick cloud. The angels of God left these, and I saw them hastening to the assistance of those who were struggling with all their energies 
to resist the evil angels and trying to help themselves by calling upon God with perseverance. So angels left those and they went to the people who were really trying and who were really struggling and seeking for truth and in darkness and wanting to know what the truth was. She continues, but the angels left those who made no effort to help themselves and I lost sight of them. As the praying ones continued their earnest cries, a ray of light from Jesus would at times come to them to encourage their hearts and light their countenances. Friend, God, friends, God sent angels out to prepare the country and thereby extension, the message was going to go to the entire world very quickly that Jesus was coming soon. Let's see what was happening in history at that time. Listen to this from a church historian uh, named Beardsley. From 1843 to 1857, uh, 1843 to 57, there were several years during which the accessions to the church scarcely equaled the losses sustained by death and discipline. Here's a church historian saying, between 1843 and 57, churches didn't grow. There were these incredible revivals, the Second Great Awakening, where church attendance just exploded. And then in 1843, by the way, that was right before 1844, uh, obviously, <laughs> 1843 to 1857, they just plateaued. These churches just stopped uh, growing completely. Now, something amazing happened. Listen to this as we continue to take a look at history. He says, riches increased. What was the reason that they plateaued? Riches increased. Multitudes set their hearts upon them. Political strife grew more bitter. And the great civil war drew on apace. In the midst of all its plenty and pride, the nation woke, one, woke up one morning to find the glory was all a dream. While speculation was at fever heat, and when men were wild with a mania of money-making, there came a financial and unprecedented, excuse me, there came a financial crash unprecedented in the nation's history. In the twinkling of an eye, the riches of many took wings and flew away. Bankruptcies, failures, frauds, defalcations were on every hand and the hearts of men failed them for fear. Now when this actually happened, it was in 1857 and 1858. Listen to this. And now that the wheels of industry stood still and the noisy cries of greed were hushed, men stopped to hear the voice of the Spirit calling them to repentance and they heeded the heavenly call. Another revival of national extent began. Did you realize in the United States in 1857 and 58, there was a revival that, that had just started to begin during that time, a massive revival. It actually uh, turned into a large revival, um, which we'll mention a little bit later, but they called it the revival of a million converts. There were about a th a 30 million people in the United States at that time. So a million out of 30 is quite a lot. He continues on. Uh, this is Frank Beardsley, the church historian. In the great revival of 1857 and 58, preaching seems to have occupied a, occupied a very secondary place for the saving power of the gospel at that time received its chief emphasis through the personal testimony of men and women whose hearts God had touched. Friends, you know what that means? It wasn't just people standing up front preaching the gospel. Praise the Lord for that, amen? God uses preaching, and he will until he comes in the clouds of glory. But you know what? 
you can reach people that I could never reach. Every person in this room has a sphere of influence that no one else has. You don't need to leave your job. If the Lord is calling you to full-time ministry, then answer his call, amen? But God may be calling, or he is calling every single one of us in whatever our field of work is, whether we are a dentist, whether we are a mechanic, whatever you might do, God is calling you to be his instrument. There is nothing more powerful than our personal testimony, amen? What God has done in our lives. There was one time where Jesus said no to someone who wanted to follow him. That was the demoniac. And he didn't say no because he didn't want him to to be his disciple. He said, no, go back and tell your family, your friends, what I have done for you. You know, that man had never heard a sermon come from the lips of Jesus, but he knew what Jesus had done in transforming his life. He cast the demons out of him. He changed him from a man who cut himself with stones and cried and lived in the tombs to a man who was seated at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And friends, that testimony had the power to change the entire region. When Jesus came back to Decapolis, they were waiting for him there because this man, in fact, two of them, went out and they were these missionaries for Jesus. Friends, Jesus wants to use you. He wants to use you in your sphere of influence. The question to us is, Lord, how would you have me share? When would you have me share? In what way would you have me share? And friends, God will be faithful to reveal that to us. Amen? If we are open and looking for opportunities, he will point them out to us. Friends, this revival was not simply by preaching. It was by personal testimony that the word of God began to spread. Now listen to this. It did not begin in the churches, nor was it brought to pass by the preaching of some long-neglected doctrine of grace, as had been the case in the national revivals that had preceded it. Very interesting. Listen to what this church historian is saying as he looks back into the past. He, He says, this is different. All of the other revivals that took place, they all had some long neglected doctrine of grace. We think of the Baptists when they had this revival and they recognized, um, they recognized that baptism was by immersion. They discovered this teaching in God's holy word and it caused a revival. Martin Luther discovered that righteousness was not by works, but by faith, amen? This was a long neglected doctrine of grace. And this church is starting to say, there, there seems to be no long neglected doctrine of grace. There was no teaching that, that was missing that came to light that sparked this revival. Well, friends, what was it that was missing? What was it that was missing? You know, it is absolutely no coincidence that just a year before this, God had revealed the truth of the Laodicean message to his remnant church. He had done this so that they would wake up to the fact that they were spiritually lukewarm, that they would catch fire for Jesus and give the final call to humanity. Brothers and sisters, that long-neglected doctrine of grace that was meant to go to everyone on planet Earth was none other than the three angels' message of Revelation 14. This is the last message to planet Earth. It's the final call that God is making to us. This is the message that God wanted to attend this revival. This is why God dispatched the angels so that they would prepare people's hearts and they were ready. But God's people, God's people, we're not ready to take this message on. 
even as non-Adventist students of the Bible have understood the three angels' message is, is the last call to humanity. It is the last appeal to planet Earth. Listen to this quote from actually a Roman Catholic in the 1950s, uh, John, Dr. Knox, who, Ronald Knox, who actually wrote a translation of the Bible. He actually recognized in his study of Scripture that the three angels' message was the final call. Listen, final is the way that he, he uh, translated this word everlasting gospel in Revelation 14, the first angel's message. Literally, eternal. It is not clear why the gospel uh, preached by the angel is so described, but the context suggests that it is the last call to repentance which will be offered to man this side of eternity. It's the last call to man this side of eternity. Friends, Jesus wanted to wrap up this great controversy so that his children could go home. He wanted to wrap it up. Friends, this is the three angels' message that will usher in his second coming, the message that we are to give worship to God, our creator, the message that we are living in God's judgment hour, the message of the seventh-day Sabbath, the message of, of God's children who need to come out of the false systems of worship and come and to follow the truth, to come out of Babylon because it's fallen. The message not to take the mark of the beast, but to worship God. The message of the everlasting gospel. Friends, this is the three angels' message. And God wanted the world to know what this message was. He wanted it to, to go out to the world so that it could transform their lives. This message that angels were sent to go and prepare souls to receive would have ushered in the ends. But God's children had sunken back into their sad, lukewarm states. Early Writings, page 299, affirms that Jesus would have come again. Listen, had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on ununitedly uh, in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily with their efforts. The work would have been completed and Christ would have come ere this to receive his people to their reward. She was saying the door was, was missed. It was open. God was ready. If we had held on, if we had run and continued running and run faster with this message and, and shared it with the world, Jesus would have come ere this. Friends, after this, the church, after the, the late 1860s, 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, eventually the preaching became more and more dry. It became less and less filled with Christ. Jesus was not heard and lifted up until the Lord's messenger said that the sermons were as dry as the hills of Gilboa, which were really dry. The Holy Spirit wasn't there. The church needed revival once again, and God woke them up again. He sent messengers in 1888. He sent messengers with the, the message of righteousness by faith, and he wanted his church to take this message to the world once again. He was trying. And listen to this. Ellen White wrote this in 1901. Looking back, she said, once again, if God's people had the love of Christ in their hearts, if every church member were thoroughly imbued with the spirit of self-sacrifice, if all manifested a thorough earnestness, there would be no lack of funds for home and foreign missions. 
our resources would be multiplied. A thousand doors of usefulness would be opened and we would have, invited, we have, been, would have been invited to enter. Had the power of God been carried out by his people in giving the message of mercy to the world, Christ would have come to the earth and the saints would, ere this, have received their welcome into the city of God. Once again, the message of righteousness by faith, this message was lost sight of. Friends, what happened? Both times, what happened to God's people? This was the problem, and this is the problem. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. And ye shall seek me, God says, and find me when ye shall search for me with how much of your heart? All of your heart. We as a people, and I'm owning this, I as well, all too often have divided hearts. Isn't that right? We want to follow the Lord with all of our hearts, but we allow the things of this world to hold us down. Friends, God wants to finish this work so that we can go home, amen? He wants to bring this great controversy to a close. I'm currently studying at Andrews University, as many of you know, and I'm in a world missions class called world, Christian Witness to World Religions. We're learning about, about the incredible obstacles and the blessings and ways to connect with people of another faith But friends, did you realize that 4.45 people are born every second worldwide on average and 1.8 people die every second? That average is out to 2.65 people on average every second that are on the planet. About 10 people were just born. Actually, about 10 people. We have about 10 people more now on planet Earth than we did. And they ask, and we ask, you know, how is the work going to be finished? How can the gospel go to all the world? Look at the growth rate. How is it possible? And friends, you know what? It is humanly impossible. But Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. You know, friends, when the latter rain begins falling in its fullness, all of those precious seeds of truth that have been sown into receptive hearts are going to come to fruition. All those tracts that were handed out, the sermons downloaded, the prayers sent up for loved ones, many of them will begin to bear precious fruit. Thousands are going to join God's movement in a single day. God has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. God can finish this work and he's going to, amen? He will. In fact, we know it's going to close with even greater power and a greater attendance uh, from the Holy Spirit than which it, with which it began in the book of Acts. You know what happened in the book of Acts? Amazing things. One of them, Philip baptized an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. This man went back to Ethiopia and took the gospel there, the entire gospel, and and the country became one of the first Christian countries in Ethiopia. But when Philip was done baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, when he came up out of the water, the Bible says that Philip was caught away by the Spirit, and he was found in Azotus, which is about 10 miles away. He was transported by the Holy Spirit. God picked him up and moved him. Friends, we wonder, how are we going to get into countries that have closed borders that, that say no Christians can come, no Bibles can enter? Friends, we can't even begin to conceive what God is going to do. It's going to be incredible. And in fact, it's already beginning. You know, in, in foreign countries like Iran that don't allow Christianity or Saudi Arabia, we have testimonies and stories of, of people who are Muslim people, many of them, who are having dreams about Jesus. In fact, 
Um, there are some, one of my friends, um, his family, uh, actually all of them became uh, Christians and Seventh-day Adventists through a series of dreams. Friends, God is doing incredible things, amen? And he's going to be finishing the work in ways that we cannot even imagine. Friends, soon a small black cloud is going to appear in that eastern sky. The earth is going to begin to shake before its maker. God is doing everything that he can to save us. He's doing everything possible to save us. There was a gypsy boy traveling with his family in Eastern Europe. This was years ago in the time of horse and buggies, and as they were traveling, they were crossing over a river. And they were crossing over on boats, and as they were crossing on boats, this boy's mother fell into this water. He was a young man. She didn't know how to swim. He jumped off into the water without even thinking. He jumped off the boat out into the water and swam downstream after her through the rapids. He got to her. He, he wrapped his arms around her and, and tried starting to kick to shore. But his mother was so frantic that, that her arms were flailing and she was trying to get air and she was pulling down on him, pushing him down into the water. The young boy, he, or the young man, he pushed himself away and, and got his breath and then he took off down the stream once again to try to save his mother. As he finally got to her again, she, she kept pushing against him once again, just putting her hand on his head, and, and she was frantic, not knowing what she was doing. He had to break away again to get air. One more time, he said, I've got to save my mother. He took off down the stream, swimming as fast as he could with the current. He saw her there, and... And he grabbed her, and it was the same thing. She was pushing her hands, pushing his head down with her hands. She was frantically scratching and kicking, just struggling to get air. But this time, after the boy broke away, he was too late. At the funeral, everyone was wondering what this young boy, what this young man was going to say. Tears were in his eyes. As he was up front with his family, the casket across the front of the little church, he stood up with tears in his eyes and he said, I could have saved you. I could have saved you if only you would have let me. If only you would have let me. Friends, when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory, the Bible says that there are going to be people, those who have rejected his mercy, who will say, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. And they will run and they will cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. Friends, I imagine that Jesus will look down and he'll say, I tried to save you. I tried to save you. If only you would have let me, my child. If only you would have let me. Friends, praise God. Praise the Lord that there will be another group of people on that day. Amen? There will be a group of people who have allowed Jesus to have complete control of their hearts. 
there will be a group who, say, who will have said, Lord, take me. Take everything that I have and everything that I am. And their words on that day, as they see their Lord coming in the clouds, we find in Isaiah 26, verse 25, verse 9, which says, And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, do you want to be with that group on that day? Amen. So do I. Brothers and sisters, it's been 160 years since God's final call first came to his people to take to planet Earth. He wants to wrap this great controversy up. He wants to finish it so that he can come and take his children home. The question comes, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? Friends, God wants to use us to finish this great controversy. Do you want Jesus to come? Do you want Jesus to come? Yeah. Amen. Amen. I believe you. Friends, I have to be honest with you tonight. All too often in my life, I, I've been tempted to think, you know, and some of us think this, we're like, you know, I really want Jesus to come, but I'd love to graduate high school, you know, and, and, and then Jesus can come. Or, you know, I, I, I want Jesus to come, I really do, but I just want to finish college. I just want to finish university, and then Jesus can come. And we get there, and we say, you know, I, I just want to start my career, just get a job, and, and then come, Lord Jesus. Or, Lord, I, I just want to be married. I just want to get married, and then you can come. And then it becomes, Lord, I just want to have a child. Let's just have a second child, and then, and then you can come, Lord. Lord, I just want to retire. I'm so close. And then come. Friends, I'm going to say something strong. And I pray you never forget it. The Lord brought this home to my heart one day, and that's the only reason I'm sharing it with you. Aside from the reason that loved ones, friends, and family may not be ready for his return, if we don't want Jesus to come right now, we don't really want him to come. If we don't want him to come this very moment, if we don't love him more than anything in this world, if we are not willing to surrender it all, to say, Lord, I'd rather have eternity with you, then do we really, really want him to come? Friends, Jesus is coming very soon. He's knocking at the door of our hearts. Revelation 3, he says these words in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Friends, Jesus is knocking at the door of our hearts. He wants us to be ready. He wants to prepare us for his return. 
I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and bow your head with me. I'd like to invite you to listen to the words of this song. Man, friends, this evening, we've seen once again that Jesus wants to come very soon. The only way that we can be ready to see him on that day, face to face, is if we welcome into our hearts daily now by faith. Amen. He's coming very soon. <laughs> He's coming very soon. This week we have been hearing the Lord make the final call to us. Amen. And if you want to say tonight, Lord, I recognize that you've been making this final call to me. I want to welcome you into my heart. Not just in this very moment, but help me to continue to do so every moment of every day until you come. If that's your desire, I invite you to stand tonight. We're standing to say, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, but here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now, friends, God wants to use us. Remember, Brothers and sisters, he wants to use us in our spheres of influence. We've seen tonight that God is not just making the final call to us. He wants to make the final call through us. Tonight, if you want to say, Lord, not in some ambiguous way, but in a specific way, I want you to use me. Make the final call through me. To my coworkers, my friends, my family, those who want to know you, Lord, I want to be your instrument. If that's your desire tonight and you want to say specifically, Lord, I want to receive some kind of training. I want to know how to direct souls to you. I want to know how to give a Bible study or how to share a gospel tract with someone. Lord, I, I want to have some form of training. The church this church is going to be hosting a training early next year. And we actually have a sign-up in the back. If you are interested for more information and knowing how you can allow God to make the final call through you to humanity, don't allow it to end here tonight. But allow Him to do so. There are also other things that God can equip you through AYC, Australian Youth for Christ, is an incredible program where you can go and receive training and, and, and learn more about how to be a soul winner. There's also uh, a program called ARISE. stands for a Research Institute for Soul Winning and Evangelism. And I encourage you to receive information. We have uh, flyers for AYC. If you would like more information, I have to tell you, AYC was inspired by a program in the States that changed the course of my life. I can confidently say that if it wasn't for what God did in my life through guiding me there, I would not be here before you tonight. So I encourage you, take a flyer, share it with a young person that you know and love. You yourself, pray about going. Before we close tonight, I just want to ask, are you willing to say, Lord, you've made the final call to me and I am standing in response to that. Now, Lord, I want you to make the final call through me. 
that's your desire, raise your hands as a sign to the Lord. Not for me, not for those around, but to say, Lord, make the final call through me. I want this great controversy to wrap up so that we can go home to heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have seen our hands, a reflection of our hearts. You have seen the commitment of your children tonight to allow you to make the final call to humanity to take the everlasting gospel, to allow you to make that call through each of us, Lord. And we pray that this would not fade from our minds or our hearts, but that we would pursue training, that we would come and learn how to share the gospel, Lord, with those around us. We want to be effective tools and uh, witnesses for you. We know and believe that you're coming very soon, Lord, and we want to be a part of that group that stands with smiles on our faces, with joy in our hearts, because we are seeing our Savior face to face, the one who we have seen through the eye of faith. Lord, may each and every one of us here be there on that day, we pray. Thank you for your love for us that is everlasting. We thank you that you love us so much that you meet us where we are, but you don't leave us there. You raise us to higher heights. You transform us. We submit ourselves to you again, Lord. Thank you for making the final call to us. And as we go, let us remember that your greatest desire is to make the final call through us, which will really enable you to work out our own salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We love you and praise you. And as we go from this place, bring us back again safely tomorrow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.